Hi, this is Brad Johnson, and I want to thank you for coming back to the Corner Table each week for what we hope you find to be entertaining conversations with some very interesting people. We want you to know we work hard to give you compelling conversation and the best audio possible. Sometimes Wi-Fi and other factors challenge the effort for quality we seek weekly. We hope in spite of these occasional challenges, you find the conversations enlightening and entertaining. Thank you again for listening to the Corner Table Talk podcast. Mean Old Lion Media presents Corner Table Talk. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Corner Table Talk. I'm your host, Brad Johnson. Here we explore subjects related to food plus drink plus culture, and that includes entertainment, of course. I was recently thinking about people I know who have managed to constantly adapt to the ever-changing whims of the entertainment industry. The conversation started with my son as I was naming people I know that over decades have thrived and morphed from their initial starting point in the industry. Directors who began as actors, music supervisors who at the start of their careers were performers, restaurateurs for that matter, who became film producers and in some cases podcast hosts. That led me to reach out to my next guest whose career in the entertainment industry since the mid-70s, maybe early 70s, but mid-70s, has shown him to be a model of resiliency. Ramon Hervey II is a name known to many industry insiders since his early days as a publicist working with the public relations giant Rogers and Cowan. Soon after heading his own firm, Hervey & Company, his job title expanded from publicist to film, TV, and event producer, music supervisor, and talent manager. In those various roles, the list of famous names Ramon has worked with include Little Richard, Muhammad Ali, Richard Pryor, Salma Hayek, Babyface, and Vanessa Williams, as well as many, many others. His clients and projects have won awards and critical acclaim across the spectrum of entertainment. I should note, talent runs in the family, notably Ramon's sister, Winnie, is a very talented and well-known TV producer and screenwriter. His daughters, Jillian and Melanie, as well as son, Devin, whose mom is the lovely and multi-talented Vanessa Williams, are all artists. Through a four-decade career, Ramon has the respect of his peers, clients, as well as his many friends who know him to be reliable, insightful, extremely bright, and always ready for a good dose of laughter. I, I think I like that part of his personality the best. We've had some good laughs. And from what, I'm, what I've been told, I haven't had this verified, but I've been told he's also got some skills in the kitchen. So I'm going to ask him about that, too. He's an entrepreneur in the truest sense of the word and a proud dad of three. Ramon Hervey, welcome and thank you for joining me at Corner Table Talk. Well, thanks, Brad. It's a really a pleasure to uh, uh, be talking to you. It's kind of strange doing it this way, but I'm very happy for you and your podcast. And uh, it's very exciting to see when your friends are, you know, doing and conquering new territories and uh, love to be supportive. And I'm happy to join you today. Well, thanks so much, man. And yeah, usually we're, we're actually sitting at a, a real table with uh, some beverages and food in front of us, but uh, we'll, we'll make do virtually today. But thanks again. So Ramon, I kick things off with what I call the short order questions. Just a couple of things I want to fire at you and get your, uh, your quick response. So what is in heavy rotation on your playlist these days? What are you listening to, man? You know what? To be honest, lately, I haven't been listening to as much music as I 
traditionally have because I've been doing a lot of writing. I still have albums. So when I really want to sit down and listen, I go back to like a Marvin Gaye record, you know, um, What's Going On or uh, any Jimi Hendrix record, some of my own clients, uh, Babyface. I like some of the newer stuff, but I, I'm really not listening to like any radio. Like I don't listen to the radio that much anymore you know so I listen to my daughter's stuff because she sends it to me all the time <laughs> and uh, you know I listen to other stuff that like uh, even your son you know when I've heard about him breaking out with stuff I've listened to his stuff and you know so it's I don't have it I, I guess the, the short answer is I don't have like a favorite artist at this moment that just kind of does it for me right right but you put the needle on the record occasionally. I, I like that. You still listen to some LPs. That's yeah, yeah. I yeah. still listen. I have over, you know, I I used to have over like three thousand uh, records, and I sh- shipped them around to every place. And I just yeah. said, man, this is getting to be right. <laughs> too much of a hassle. So I I nailed, I trimmed it back, I spared it down, pared it back, and I gave my kids some of my records and stuff. But uh, I still have like uh, you know some really great records that. Um, I just don't think there there's something warm that comes with vinyl that you can't get with although digital music is fantastic and you you can make uh, the sound is crystal clear but when you hear like Marvin Gaye sing on a vinyl record it's just it's different. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you on that, man. And I also had to pare back my collection. But the interactivity that you get from pulling an album out of a jacket. Um, and placing it on the turntable is a little bit different than uh, just teeing up Spotify on your on your laptop. Tell me, and I know you you know you've represented so many famous people, man. And without naming names, I'm curious. Tell me your least favorite trait in an artist or a client. What what kind of gets under your skin? Maybe in the initial meeting, some something that causes you to decide not to take someone on, or just something that you feel is it kind of kind of bugs you that you tend to avoid. I think that the the thing that probably I find the most aggravating is um, artists who um, sort of dis, dishonor their fame, mm-hmm. and they are kind of uh, they believe they're above everybody else. They feel that they can be irresponsible. They can treat people with disrespect. Um, you know, just common decency uh, that sometimes uh, fame can gives people the sense that they they're entitled to everything and that and they don't owe anybody anything. And I think when you see that in someone, particularly when you see it in younger uh, people who maybe don't even have what they think they have, <laughs> you know, that they've reached a level or, or a threshold where they really aren't deserving of even what they think that entitles them to be. That's really frustrating. I think it's more prevalent today than it used to be mm-hmm. uh, because the amount of uh, the window for fame is much shorter and people feel like if they have one hit or two hits, they're, they're superstars. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense that that would be the thing that you would go to as a, someone who, who spends their career building reputations. We know how quick, how long that process can be and how easy it can be to undo with just a, you know, irresponsibility in some cases. So I totally get that, Ramon. So social media, friend or foe, how do you look at social media, Ramon? 
It's a quagmire. I think it can be both. You have to be strategic and know how to use them in order for you to, you know, uh, tip the scale in one way or the other. It's still a, a new platform. I mean, a lot of people feel it's the end all, but, you know, 20 years ago, it didn't even exist. So compared to radio has been around since, you know, late 1800s, TV since 1950, you know, so the amount of time that we've had these other forms of media has been much longer. So I still think the jury, for me at least, the jury's still open. But I think uh, there's a lot of pluses to social media. You just have to be, uh, you have to understand how to use it. And uh, a lot of people still don't don't know how to make it work for them. And and regulating how much and when and, and what you say and know that it, you know, it can live on and on. Content is the key to social media. And I agree with that, but I think it's the quality of the content. You're still trying to create an image or you're trying to build a brand. And so there still has to be a strategy. And I think that you have to, you know, sit down and and really say, what what is our messaging? What What are we really trying to say? And can we roll that out in the little, you know, clips that you're given? I mean, you know, on Instagram, you get 30 seconds. They tell you don't even try more than 30 seconds. Um, everything has been condensed down. And that's what social media is doing. It's making the story, it's making harder to tell stories because you're giving less space to do it. Even music, you know, back in the day, you got four to five minutes to write a song. Now the average songs are less than three minutes. You can't get on Spotify or Apple Music with songs for the most part. They don't want to play songs that are over three minutes. So the, the long version of bad luck just wouldn't cut it today. Huh? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Ain't getting no Spotify. Play. Nope. Good points, man. Ramon, I know you've traveled all over the world, but is there a vacation spot that you are looking forward to traveling to? Wow. Yeah, there's a there's still a bunch of places that I haven't been that I'd like to go to. You know, I'd like to go to, uh, I never went to New Zealand and that's an area I've been to Australia a couple of times, but I've never been to New Zealand. I've never been to Kenya, Africa. I've been to other parts of Africa, but Kenya has always been a place that just seemed to have a lot, you know, the the wildlife. And I always wanted to go to Kenya. That, those would be two places that I think um, I, I have to go to before I check out. And China. I never visited the Wall of China, but I've been to Hong Kong. And so, but that whole Asian, because it's a very influential part of the world today. And I'd love to be able to check that out too. Yeah, no, I'm with you on that. Shanghai, I thought was just a fascinating city. Beautiful, beautiful city with uh, cutting edge restaurants and a very cool scene and dynamic. So tell me, best piece of advice that you've been given? Believe in yourself and and don't give up. Always believe in yourself, you know, and uh, I think if you, everything comes from the self and I think it's hard to go out there and do things and, and be successful um, if you don't have self-belief. And it's something that I instill in all my artists or any of the clients that I have. You know, I said, you know, basically, if you don't believe in yourself, you're not going to really be able to ingratiate the people that you need to, you know, your team to manifest everything that you want in, in your life. And it all comes from, you know, do I believe in myself and can I convince other people to believe in what 
what I'm selling. Well, you know, Ramon, I mean, we all experience doubts. You know, we all have that other voice in our head from time to time, some depending on how we feel, you know, one side of the brain is a little louder than the other. Um, so do you think that that, that self-confidence is, is something that comes over time? Is it, is it mental discipline that teaches you to turn down the negative and turn up the positive? I think it's a combination. You know, I think uh, wisdom comes with experience. And if you don't have experience, if you're not put in the, you know, uh, it's being like on the sidelines and, and instead of being a starter, if you never get in the game, you don't really know how to act, mm -hmm. you know, so you got to at least get to the point where you are at a, where you can make decisions that are quantifiable, you know, because they're based on learned response. You know, and, and you, you start to build up that knowledge that you really need to make better decisions and, and decipher what's in your best interest or what's not. And I think as you get older, it takes less deductive reasoning time to do that. You know, you, you're able to examine uh, and assess things much faster than when you're younger. And you do carry a lot more doubt because you, you just don't. You just don't know. You A lot of times you're doing things for the first time. And I think you're going to make mistakes, you know, when you're doing everything for the first time. You can't win all the time, you know. And I think, but that changes. You can increase your percentage rate, hopefully, over time by just, uh, you know, understanding and seeing negative things right off the top. Mm -hmm. And just saving that energy and that time and going down that route when you know more than likely it's not going to materialize the way you think it, you know. Right, right. I, I, you know, normally would just fly through these questions, but you raised some interesting things here. And, and, and I just recently had this conversation with someone because it touched me personally. But do your kids, are they responsive to your advice? I mean, it's what you made a career doing is, you know, is, is helping to build careers. But... Do your own kids, do they do they take to heart what dad has to say and, and act upon it? Or are you not the best messenger for your own kids? I think the best, my approach to fathering is um, to be available and to talk when I'm asked to talk. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not out there trying to live my kids' lives. And I think right. that's the thing that... Uh, mm -hmm. If I was going to tell any parent, you know, if, if you try to do that, you're, it's, it's a losing proposition, you know. So what I've done with my kids is just made them, told them I'm available to you 24-7, whatever, whenever I can help you, I'll do my best. If I, if I can't help you, I'll find someone that can. By doing that, I created an open forum where they can feel comfortable coming to me and just asking for my input. And I feel again when it when it's asked, then they're they're going to be receptive to it. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that they're going to agree to it, but at least I'm not um, I'm not hovering over them and trying to make decisions for them before they need my assistance. Right, right, makes sense, man. I I, I like your approach, and I. I I've learned to uh, to adopt that same approach. <laughs> yeah, especially uh, with my daughter, the music, uh, you know, who's a who's mm -hmm. who's an artist. I, mm -hmm. I find with her, you know, I, I managed her in the very beginning, mm -hmm. and then I stepped aside because I, you know, I didn't want to wake up one day and say, "Dad, you're fired." But uh, <laughs> at the same time, I told her, you know, that I'm, you know, I'm always going to be here for you, and I'm going to tell you my opinion whether you like it or not. But I'm not going to be, you know, shadowing you. Yeah, no, it's an important distinction, man. All right, so 
Who past or present would you most like to host at an intimate dinner party? And because you said, I've heard you say that you have some kitchen skills, what would you be cooking, Ramon? I'm a big basketball fan. And I was thinking that it would be fun to do a project just on point guards. Because some of my biggest, uh, I'm fans of like, and I've gotten to know several of them, but Magic Johnson, uh, Isaiah Thomas, Stephen Curry, uh, these guys. I'd love to do, have a meeting, I mean, have a dinner with them and see, hear them talk about what it's like to see the game from their eyes and, and how they manage there are different approaches to how they manage their teams. That would be a really fun night. And what I would cook is probably some, you know, like a, a soul food meal. I like to make uh, like maybe uh, some short ribs or slow cooked pork, um, some sweet potatoes. I make a pretty good uh, mac and cheese, all kinds of salads. I make a really good Louisiana cornbread. Um, that I where I use uh, real corn and I put cheese in it and jalapeno peppers. It's a recipe that an aunt gave me, and um, and every time I cook it, everybody seems to to love it. It's not it's not like it doesn't take long to cook, but it's just it it's you put in the, the cream corn with the mixed corn and it gives the corn a consistency. So it's it's not cakey it's a little bit more creamy and it's almost like a mm-hmm. corn pudding but you can mm-hmm. still pick it up and eat it by by your aunt by the hand and then mm-hmm. maybe uh make some uh my favorite dessert that i can make uh that i've gotten pretty good at is tiramisu i love tiramisu it's one of my favorite uh, desserts and i make that and uh you know a vegetable i like to grill a little asparagus sprinkle it with a little uh, uh lemon juice and and sprinkle some Parmesan cheese on top. Well, I may not be a, a famous point guard, but I sure do know <laughs> where I'm coming for dinner next time. I'm in Harlem. <laughs> I'm calling you, brother. That cornbread sounds ridiculous. And I love corn pudding. I mean, that's like, you know, and it's hard to, you don't, you don't find corn pudding on, on many menus these days. So you got me. With yeah, that. I've never been to a place where I found this cornbread. But you, mm-hmm. I think you, I knowing you, I think you would like it. And I, I used to love your cornbread. The cornbread that you served at George's was good. Uh-huh. Yeah, I really like yeah. that cornbread. Thank you for that. So, Ramon, let's let's dive in here, man. If I'm not mistaken, are you originally from Massachusetts? Okay. I was born and raised in Chicago. I'm actually the second. My dad was in the service. And so we, uh, both my parents were from Chicago. Well, my dad was from Chicago. He lived in the uh, south side of Chicago. And then my mom lived in Evanston. She was uh, raised in Evanston. They had a family house on Emerson Street. And then when I was two or so, that's when we moved to, so I was very young. I was born in Cook County Hospital. And then uh, my dad got, uh, was in the service and he uh, got stationed in at Westover Air Force Base in Massachusetts. And then I lived in several different communities there, like Chicopee Falls. Medford was uh, the place that I grew up. I went to elementary school there. Okay. Well, I, yeah. I knew I had Massachusetts uh, in my head in terms of your background. I think we, we touched on that during one of our, our many conversations, but Chicago being uh, your birthplace and your hometown. Describe for me, if you will, the Hervé household. What was it like? It, I always tell people it was, it was five against two. 
It was, you know, to me, it was the kids against their parents, and I was the leader of the kids. So I was always saying, guys, we got to stick together. It's us against them. You know, I had two brothers, both who I've lost since, um, but I had two younger brothers. I was the oldest son, and I had two, and I have two sisters, uh, both who are still with us. Uh, one, my older sister. She was fine because she didn't really want to be in charge anyway. So uh, I pretty much ran the family as far as I was concerned as as the child part of the family. Right. <laughs> Make that distinction. <laughs> yeah. yes. I did not run the family, but I just ran the children. Uh-huh. And, you know, I, I, I was kind of fearless. So, you know, like little things like needles, uh, thunder, lightning. I was never afraid of very many things. So they all would, like if it was thunder and lightning, they'd all hover to me and, you know, they'd want me to help protect them. You know, I played the big brother role to the best of my ability. You know, I Mm -hmm. tried to look out for all of them. Mm -hmm. And uh, my parents were an interesting couple. You know, they're an attractive couple. Uh, My dad was in the service. My mom, um, was a homemaker, but she also worked in the retail business for many years. Um, and they did their they did their best. They had an interesting dynamic, and uh, my dad wasn't. I wasn't really a fan of my dad, so we uh, from very early on in my life. Um, we were never close and we never became close. So um, some of the times that uh, one of the things that we used to do as kids is um, we used to do this pretend uh, we would play act and we would give each kid a chance to be able to say what they really wanted to say to the parent. So I'd say, okay, you play dad and then whatever. And then we would crack up. and But that was a way where we would get out all of our angst, you know, and, and we'd crack each other up at the same time time and and we would do this consistently um it was fun at times and it was depressing at times because my dad was uh, somewhat he was abusive he had an abusive character uh streak in him and um so there was uh you know like any family there's there's good and there's bad times yeah you know man i i amongst my friends and and i'll include my dad in that you knew my dad um and you know people would be surprised to know my father's nickname uh, as a young man was Short Fuse mm-hmm. because he was so volatile, man, and it was so easy to, to set him off. And a lot of my black friends, man, have stories about their dads that, you know, this, this just underlying anger that unfortunately, you know, in some cases, if you throw alcohol in the mix, it can get, you know, violent. I had a lovely relationship with my dad. Uh, oh, I know. Your dad was great, man. I, I was a big fan of your dad's. Yeah, thank you, man. He, and he was of yours. And I think it's also informed us as dads, right, in, in ways that uh, we've, we've learned from some observation. Um, and, I, and I've had the pleasure of knowing your mom, having met your mom. Your mom is 94. 94. Yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic. She, is she doing okay? Yeah, she's healthy, man. She's hanging in there. She doesn't have any lingering health issues. You know, she's dealing with little things here and there. She's slowed down a bit, but all her wits are still there. She's still bossy and wants to run everything, you know. She even tries to uh, tell me how to get to her house, and of course, she, she, she won't let me drive. She wants to always give me directions. The last time I was in L.A., she told me to turn like five blocks before her house. I said, Mom, this is not where you live. I'm going to turn <laughs> and, and I'm going to turn to make you happy now. And then after that, will you please be quiet? Because as a good son. Yeah. Just please. You got to just be quiet. I'm, you know, 
I'm not a little kid. I I know how to get you home. <laughs> oh man, you gotta love her. Yeah. So Ramon, you mentioned you mentioned L.A. and uh, I know you've lived in Los Angeles, Harlem now. How is life in Harlem for you these days, man? You know, Harlem's an interesting um, place to live because uh, I initially, uh, after I got divorced and I was living, I lived up in Chappaqua for many years to, you know, just to stay there to be a father. And then uh, when my son graduated from high school, I had contemplated moving into the city several times. And then every time I thought about doing it, it just didn't make sense. I thought I was going to put too much pressure on myself and the family, the extent, you know, the, you know, broken up family. But still a family and uh i wanted to live downtown because that's the area that i you know i came to harlem for fun and different things but downtown was really more the area where i spent most of my time whenever i came into the city i knew i knew it very well and uh but all the places that I wanted to get were ridiculous. And I was living in houses and everything down there was really small. So I picked Harlem and, and I started thinking, and I hadn't lived in a really black area community in, in quite a while. And I started thinking, you know, I, I found a place in Harlem on 120th Street between Park and Madison. And, you know, I just thought it would be a great, great way to rekindle my black heritage and there was so much history in Harlem a lot of you know gentrification was happening but still you had this this history and just getting to know a part of uh of New York which you know it was really legendary on so many in so many ways and getting accustomed to the food and you know and trying to be part of the neighborhood you know to yeah. be uh, integrate into a neighborhood that I really didn't uh, when I lived in Chappaqua I, I didn't really do that as much but I was mostly there as a father you know so I think Harlem's going through some um, growing pains and a lot of people think that gentrification is happening it's all throughout Harlem and it, and it isn't there's pockets of it hmm. you know there's pockets on the west side primarily you know Frederick Douglass Boulevard has really I mean that's kind of a melting pot and you can see how gentrification in old Harlem is trying to fuse itself together. There's blocks where you can see, you can go and there's five or six restaurants where you see no black people in those restaurants. Wow. They're almost 90% white people. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then you can go a couple other blocks and it's the exact opposite. Mm -hmm. So you have these little, you know, areas where you know and it's not like the typical white it's a lot of europeans mm -hmm. who came over here a large uh, french sector a lot of french people um few of the restaurant owners are french but you know it's 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 a melting pot but i don't know if it's it's a it's a completely fused neighborhood and then you have East Harlem, which isn't really this, you know, that's still Latin and it's not quite the same as the West. And I live four blocks from Lexington and 125th. And that part of Harlem is old Harlem. I mean, you, you can see, I've seen people stabbed there, people with their pants down, people on some drug where they're just spaced out and can't move. All the new age drugs start in the ghetto and they start in those areas pockets and people hover around the you know the subway station and you know it's not it's not a pretty sight but then you know five blocks away you could go to the red rooster or something on 125th and lennox and it's a whole different community so it's you really have to know harlem to know where it is and where it isn't the same where you know some areas are still very much stressed and suffering from disenfranchisement and others where you feel, okay, well, this is a great looking street. You know, all the brownstones look great. And you see a lot of people 
who aren't black walking out of, you know, with their kids and their families. And so it's it's going to be interesting to see how it develops. Even since the 10 years that I've been here, there's been an influx of big name brand names like Bed Bath & Beyond. Um, there's a Whole Foods that's been there now for about five years. The whole, the Bed Bath & Beyond closed in like less than three years. So, you know, some people, they're coming in and trying to use it, but it's not necessarily completely happening. Yeah. So I, I, I still think it's a community that's trying to grow and find out what it's going to be next. Because a lot of the other thing I think people don't realize about Harlem is it's never been just a black community. It started off like Irish, Italian, mm -hmm. and it's morphed. You know, it wasn't until like the mid 70s that black people really became sort of the prominent um culture in Harlem. Well, it began after the Great Migration, right? And yeah. the promise of hope in the northern cities of employment and careers. And in a lot of cases, that, that did not happen. Um, you know, I grew up a few blocks from Harlem, but certainly witnessed how the that um, the more affluent, the more upward, upwardly mobile African-Americans migrated to the Upper West Side because of Harlem's troubles, you know, yeah. these in the 70s with drugs and heroin and then crack and so, yeah, I, I, I hear you, man. I think the, the fusion, to use your terminology, is an interesting one to watch to see how those communities ultimately, uh, hopefully thrive together. Ramon, I want to I want to turn to because um, you got you've had such a, a great career and an interesting career. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the media and the press, um, which you've had uh, a lot of dealings with over the years. I recently read an article in The New York Times. In fact, I think it was this past Sunday. Uh, Brent Staples wrote. The title was How the White Press Wrote Off Black America, and it's the history of how African-Americans have been treated and portrayed by the white press, topics ranging from degrading and racist language used to describe African-Americans in the press to completely ignoring or inaccurately reporting events affecting the black communities. And it's interesting with all the discussion around critical race theory to hear about specific incidents and dignities and atrocities that had previously not really been widely reported. Many of us have our own experience with the press and how we've experienced the legacy of, quote, being written off. And I'm curious, man, as, a, as an African-American and someone who has dealt with the press for decades, what has been, what was your experience early on? Let me start there. Well, I, I would agree with that general assessment. I don't know if it's writing off, but I think they've been able to... Uh, control the, the narrative and they've been able to dictate how they want what they felt was the best way to, you know, marginalize black culture. When I first got into business, the, the, there really wasn't a, a feeling that any media, uh, white media, wanted to make, wanted black people to be successful uh, entertainment wise. They, they weren't going out of their way to uh, embrace even whoever our biggest people were. You go all the way back to the Ella Fitzgeralds and, mm -hmm. um, you know, any of the jazz artists, you know, um, the legendary jazz artists of, of those days, they, they didn't embrace them. They really didn't want to embrace the Marvin Gaye's and Motown. Um, but they ended up having to because, you know, we were beginning to move outside of our own community little by little. And they had to deal with this in a way that they really didn't want to. But I, I, I think that the, the other thing that I think has been a real harbinger and, and, a, and a drawback to our narrative being told in the way that reflects who we are is just a lack of journalists. 
there, there were there were no there were very few journalists and there were no editors. So if there are no editors that are controlling what's written uh, about your culture, then it's open season. They can pretty much say what they want. And that's still a struggle in today. And that's what I found. There are very little black journalists when I first started in the mid-70s. There were no major music editors that I can remember at any of the major papers, meaning the New York Times, LA Times, Washington Post, Boston Globe, you know, any major city. There, there were no black music editors. There was a guy named Dennis Hunt, a prominent music critic at the LA Times at the time that Bob Hilburn was uh, editor. You know, for example, Dennis, I don't think he ever got a cover page of calendar, the Sunday calendar section, which is like, you know, the epitome of what a music critic or any of the, if you get a cover of their Sunday magazine for any major national newspaper, that was something, you know, and you couldn't go to any place, Washington Post, or there was a guy at the Washington Post who was well known. There wasn't a quote, pop music critic who was black, who was actually the head of the whole. Uh, So from entertainment, and then I think you can go into metro sections, business sections of the newspapers, there were no, there were no editors. So So Ramon, let me, let me throw then at you on, on that point, because I, I mean, that parallels my, my industry having come from the food world. We experienced the same thing. No black food reviewers, food writers, um, you know, we're, we're few and far between, certainly no editors. But let me throw a few uh, names at you, get your reaction as to the, you know, the role that, that these individuals and or organizations played in terms of the coverage um, that you were able to, to get for some of your clients. BET, Soul Magazine, Ebony and Jet, Don Cornelius and Soul Train, and then some of the chroniclers of the black entertainment industry, Stanley Crouch, Steve Ivory, Regina Jones, Rudy Langless, who, you know, Rudy was the first black editor at the Village Voice. I don't think that happened until the mid 80s. Nelson George, Audrey Bernard at the uh, Amsterdam News in Harlem wrote a great society column and, and gave a lot of folks. I remember uh, I, I remember Audrey. So give, yeah. me, give me your impression uh, working in that industry, the role that some of these individuals and organizations play to at least give you places to go where you knew that you had a, a, an ear and some support. Um, they were vital. I mean, they all, all the people that you just named um, played a role in advancing our culture and opening it up to mainstream audiences, you know, um, because it, they were able to help give our music, our culture value, mm-hmm. intrinsic value. And that's one of the things that if they wouldn't have done that, then there was nobody else to do that. Because as I just noted, white America or, or white, all the, the white media structure, they didn't care. They that wasn't important to them. So if the Regina Jones and um, and these people, Regina, you know, had Soul Magazine, and you know, I mean, you had to be in Soul Magazine to be valid. You know, if you can't get in Soul Magazine, then that was like, damn, you you can't get in Soul Magazine, and you're black, and that means you ain't Asian. You know, because like, Regina wasn't. You know, the thing that I liked about Regina was she wanted the best. 
Yeah. It wasn't about like, I'm not going to put everybody in my magazine just because they're right. black. Just because. Yeah, just because. Mm-hmm. And uh, so she was uh, a staunch, she was not an easy sell. Mm-hmm. I mean, she had, she, um, she, she worked diligently to try to make sure that she was representing the culture in the best way and she was representing the people that she felt and her team of writers like Steve Ivory and and, uh, several others felt were legitimate, you know, um, talents uh, who were, you know, changing the face of contemporary music in in their era during their time. So those those were all people that I, uh, you know, I first started at Motown and I was only allowed to deal with black press. Even though I worked at a black company uh, with Barry Gordy, there was a guy named Michael Roshkin, and he was the chairman of, uh, he was the VP and chairman of, of public relations there. And he, um, he controlled all the major media. So I couldn't call Newsweek, Time Magazine, the New York Times, all of those publications. And Bob Jones, who was the uh, legendary publisher, he's the one that gave me my break, actually. He wasn't allowed to either. So when I came in there, I was only dealing with the major with black media all around the country. I could deal with it in LA, for example, all those names that you just mentioned, uh, Regina Jones, uh, Don Cornelius, who I worked with for over 10 years as his, I actually was his publicist for many years. I helped him launch uh, the Soul Train Music Awards. And I had uh, many, many of my clients that would not have ever appeared anywhere else on TV appeared on Soul Train, thanks to Don. You know, Don had a uh, uh, he he was a real uh, orchestrator of, uh, he introduced so many, you know, just hundreds of the best black talent in the industry. For, and you know, you Ramon, know. as you're saying that, you know, and again, I, I related back to the, to the restaurant industry to some degree, but, you know, the fact that you were directed towards these black media companies, black outlets, it helped these these companies to proliferate or, or at least thrive, right? Because it, they knew they were getting a certain segment of the business. Once it became a little, you know, more general, and the, the media became a little more friendly to other cultures, I think it diluted some of the significance of being more specific. And I think as a result, the audience started to to fade. For some, I know Ebony and Jed are, you know. I think they recently got bought, but they're they're not the the publication they once were. Do you do you see anything in in that? Here's what the the real issue was. As a publicist, what I realized when I got in that position and I was dealing with this, every media uh, outlet that you mentioned, BET, uh, Don Cornelius, whose show was syndicated, Regina Jones, all of these publications, although they were uh, documenting and chronicling the best of black, they weren't getting ad support. And they really looked, you know, even Jet and Ebony, which were the, you know, they were the standard bearers at that time. I mean, every time I talked to Bob Johnson, who was the editor of Jet? He would he would talk to me about ads. Mm-hmm. What can you get? Because I worked at Motown, so can you give me ads? And I said, Bob, I'm a publicist. I'm not in ads. Mm-hmm. I can't. That's not my department. But all of these publications, Regina, all of them were struggling for ads because all these publications are based on three to one ratio. Back in the day, it was three to one ratio. So you had that. Uh, it was supposed to be three page of ads to one page of uh, of editorial. 
And that formula is how people would, that's the money they needed to really be competitive in the marketplace. And all of the publications were struggling for that. Bob BET was, you know, they formed a partnership with um, Summer Redstone and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and so they had a different situation uh, in terms of advertising because it was cable and, you know, but all the, the, all these other places and and Don too was uh, his you know, his Achilles heel was, was advertisement for, for many, many years. So, uh, and getting, you know, um, being able to get on at the right time where ads would have the most value. That was his, his biggest challenge. So when you say, uh, I think advertising was more debilitating and still is to black media to, to stay competitive. More than more than just the media and the publicity, mm-hmm. you know. So I, I think that that's been a, an ongoing struggle that uh, I I don't think it's it's changed dramatically. And I still think that if you're going to be in black media, that's going to be your your challenge. Right, right. It just it strikes me now, though, man. That you know when you see the 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 rap stars of today you know selling sprite selling mcdonald's selling these you know these products to you know the consumer and you know that they're getting paid a lot of money and obviously they they have the marketing uh they have the following man and and you know the whereas you've got these black media companies that were struggling for advertising back in the day it is just that's a that's a whole nother podcast so ramon let's let's talk about um a little bit about r&b live the the weekly concert series that uh, that that you introduced to los angeles you and bill hammond uh my friend our friend produced it was it was a phenomenal show every week incredible talent name talent uh, but the concept the stars the energy awesome yeah that the the genesis for R&B Live happened for two reasons. One was, you know, uh, Bill had an idea of doing a jam thing, which I thought was kind of interesting, but I didn't think it had any substance. And um, he had worked for me as an intern. Um, but the more I thought about it, I thought that if it really had a strong musical purpose to it, that you might hit hit our stride. And there were two things happening that, that made me feel that. One was the emergence of hip-hop music. And hip-hop was basically kind of bastardizing R&B music because they, were, they weren't using the musicians. They were sampling the music. Um, and that was putting a lot of musicians out of work you know, because normally these musicians, their livelihood besides touring was doing session work. And the other thing that was happening was technology was advancing and a lot of records were, were being made by Pro Tools. So anyone could make a record at home. Again, siphoning off black music you know black musicians losing opportunities to record in sessions and once you recorded then you'd go out and you'd perform but everything was being truncated so you know rap artists were going out and just performing with a spinner you know they didn't have dancers to tracks everything was was live to track um and then you had artists that didn't want to you know they could create sounds they didn't need to pay the artist anymore so i wanted to you know create a place like a haven for to keep our music alive to keep r&b music alive and to have the music industry particularly r&b fans be able to go to a place to enjoy that music and and the key to the concept was not to advertise the talent that was the one thing because one we didn't have the money to pay them 
two, I was a manager and I knew that if we uh, advertised the talent, they would want money. So I came up with the idea of not, we have to make this, hype this up, make it something that people want to do and not charge and build our reputation on people coming in and being surprised every week by who we put on the stage. And that was- The result of that was that it got so cool a thing to do that you got all the performers that you would have never been able to pay. Yeah, exactly. Prince performed. Stevie Wonder called me up the first time. He said, hey, Ramon, I want to come down and perform at your, what you're doing. I go, hey, Steve, man, you come down, you perform as long as you want. Stevie but, Wonder called you up on the phone? Well, I had worked with Stevie. He knew, we knew each other, but, you know, yeah, he called me up personally to say, I want to come down. I said, Stevie, whatever you want to do, man, you know, and, but it became that kind of thing. I mean, all the record labels started calling and they wanted to get their artists on so we not only got the artists but we got the um we got the industry and you know quincy and quincy brought robert streisand and uh you know we got all the major players from the, the film industry and the tele- television industry and it just became like the thing to do when when you're in la i mean i used to i always said hey i'm coming out i'll be at your place on wednesday night i'm I just flying you know i made my plans who you got can you tell me anything and i go no man i can't tell you anything otherwise you know i'll ruin it but it's going to be good it's going to be good so everybody that performed at r&b live which a lot of people didn't realize we never announced who they were and that's what made the concept um catch on and and it was our you know it was our mantra and and what kept us going for you know a good five years i think it's hard to overstate ramon how significant you know only one night of the week it was wednesday night right yeah wednesday Uh, nights just how significant a night that was culturally, how much folks looked forward to it. Yeah, it was it was fun. It, it you know, it wasn't a money making adventure and for me, uh, and and it's one of the things I'm most proud of and also actually one of my biggest failures because I never got it to be what I thought it could be. But I, you know, I got recognized and Bill, it, it led to a great career for him. So I'm happy for him and everything that he's done since. Um, I used to get recognized in airports. People say, hey man, I, I met you at R&B Live. It's like the best show I've ever been to, you know, blah, 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 you know. You're the guy from R&B Live, you know, so. And I always, I thought, man, you know, but it was like I was giving a big free house party. Yeah. You know, and I just wanted it to be, I thought it had so much more, it could have been so much more. And we had HBO interested. I had Fox TV interested. I had Stan Lathan and Russell Simmons even. I was going to bring them in as a partner. So I had all this stuff going, but it's just, you know, I had Lou Adler from the Roxy when we played there and we had to deal with 20th Century Fox. And I was just coming so close so many times, but just couldn't get over the hump. And so it's a feeling. Yeah, it's one of those things I am really, really proud of. It's it's mm-hmm. probably the most fun of anything that I've done. But also, like I said, it it's always been like a thorn in my side that I didn't get it to go all the way. Yeah, no, I, I can relate to that, man. And uh, we would love all love to know that there was a, a weekly R&B live show somewhere in, in your favorite town. Let's um, let's shift gears here. As I mentioned, you and Vanessa Williams were married. You had three beautiful children. I'm not quite sure the timeline. I know that you worked with Vanessa um, for a period in the 80s. And of course, she was the first Black Miss America. She was forced to give up her title, which 
Sam Haskell, the president of Miss America, ultimately apologized. But Ramon, I'm curious, as you navigated that, what followed in trying to get that back on track, did you think that that was going to blow over? Did you think it was bigger than it, that it became bigger than it needed to be? What was your mindset during that time? And how did you, how did you navigate through? Because obviously, Vanessa has gone on to enjoy, you know, a phenomenal career. But, you know, you were involved and, and I'm just curious to get a little a little bit of your take, what your mindset was like during that. I was involved in the very beginning. So mm-hmm. the year that she won Miss America was, was 1983, mm-hmm. September of 83. Uh, and sometime during that year, I think in those probably uh, early 84, because the Miss America pageant is in September. So sometime in 84, I was representing a, a painter, an artist named Phoebe Beasley. And Phoebe had, was friends with a guy named Dennis Dowdell, who was a neighbor of the Williams family. And uh, they lived in Millwood, New York. And because she was the first black Miss America, the pageant really didn't have any their tentacles in anything black. They didn't know about the NAACP, um, you know, any of the, 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 the Urban League and all these organizations that have been, you know, were standard bearers and, and really were a huge part of, uh, of, 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 our, of our history. So, and all these organizations wanted to tap into Vanessa and have her come and be. So they were being deluded by all this and they were, her parents were music teachers and they really didn't have the time. I mean, they were school teachers and didn't have the time to deal with it. So this guy, Dennis, was they asked him to step in and kind of be a personal advisor and handle offerings and stuff like that. And my friend, she said, Ramon, there's a guy, he's involved with Miss America. Do you know who she is? I said, yeah, yeah, I know. I know who she is. I, I mean, I know, I remember reading a, a small piece in the New York Times the day that she won. And uh, he said, well, he's building a team to help her make her transition into the entertainment business. And I suggested that he talk to you. Would you be interested in talking to him? So I said, sure, I'm game. I mean, you know, I don't know too much. I don't know if I believe too much in the pageant thing, but, you know, uh, I'd be interested to see what their plans are and whatever. And uh, so that's how I actually, I met with Dennis um, on a trip to New York. He said, hey, I like you. I think Vanessa will like you. And uh, when we get closer to the time of her reign, you know, ending, um, we're going to be in touch. So I said, cool. You know, and then uh, the upheaval happened. Basically, he called me. He told me about uh, that there was a rumor that these nude pictures were about to be published in Penthouse, but he hadn't seen him. He didn't know if they were, uh, if it was a hoax or if it was true. And uh, I told him, I said, well, if you haven't seen anything, don't say anything. Let me see. I'll do some hunting around. Let me know, you know, find out if, if it's an authentic and then we can decide what to do. So, you know, this all happened in a matter of a week. The pictures ended up being, you know, they were they were legit and they were going to come out. The pageant saw them and uh, he sent me pictures and I said, well, you know, I can see why they're not pageant friendly. They're not really terrible, terrible, but we'll just have to see. Again, I just saw, you know, the, I think the thing when you when you have a crisis is you can't jump the gun. That's the key. You really have to so know. The idea of getting out in front of a it not doesn't necessarily apply across the board. It's not always the best strategy. No, if not unless you know what you're getting in front of. 
we didn't know what the story was. Mm -hmm. And the main thing was he didn't know how the pageant was going to react. So why go out and make a statement when your only concern is, okay, what is the pageant going to do? We know these pictures are going to come out. What's their reaction? And then you have to be prepared to respond. So the pageant came out and said, we are mandating that Vanessa Williams resign and we're giving her 72 hours to respond. So he called me up and told me that's what it was. And I said, well, you know, if you want me to help out, I'll I'll help out. And what I would suggest, we should do a press conference in New York and set it for exactly at the very end of the 72 hours. Make them wait. And then we'll make an announcement. It'll be out to the world all the same. And you can follow up, send them a letter. I don't know what you guys want to do, if you're going to resign or whatever, but we can... I don't need to know that now, but you need to tell, this was like on a Friday. I was told on Friday morning, July 21st, 1984, and the press conference, I said, we need, we can't do it today. It's too late. Uh, we have 72 hours, so let's do it on Monday morning. And I, I had a, an affiliate a PR company, a good friend of mine by the name of Ed Callahan, and I told him I needed his help to help me set up this press conference. And, uh, and that's how I met them. And I pretty much, I orchestrated the whole thing. I took a red eye in that night. I set up the press conference before the close of business on, on, on Sunday, on, on Friday night. And we had, uh, you know, you had to send everything out. There was no, you know, social media or whatever. You had to fax everything. So we did a photo news alert and sent that out on Friday because I wanted to get to people so we could find out what kind of response we would get before Monday morning. Um, so it was important to get the photo news alert out before six o'clock when everybody would be leaving. And even that was pressing it like on a Friday in New York, as you know, people start bailing early. But um you know, that's that's how we started. I said, well, look, I'll come in. Um, because again, when I decided to take this on, uh, I didn't know what they were going to do. I didn't know if they were going to, you know, my thought, I remember taking the plane and is I hope they, they let her resign because that's what I thought she should do. I, You know, there was only eight weeks left and I didn't think that the pageant, even if she didn't resign, would let her do anything in the last eight weeks. And they, there was no court that I thought could rule or put an injunction that would give her permission to serve on behalf of the pageant in these last eight weeks. So my recommendation or what I thought they should do is she should resign. But when I got to New York uh, that morning, I met her mom and her dad and Dennis uh, and then some lawyers. They all, you know, wanted to uh, tell her that she should fight for it. Wow. Ramon, you know, history is is a, is the best teller of, of these stories. And, you know, in terms of a testament to the job that you did and what you orchestrated here, you got the girl. <laughs> yeah. Well, I wasn't trying to get the girl. No, I, just... <laughs> I know. But you got the girl, man. You yeah. did. Obviously, you know, what? It, how I mean, listening to you, I've never heard you tell that part of the story before. Um, and it's fascinating. And I'm and uh, I'm. Certainly, and I'm sure a lot of the people that know you um, would love to hear more in detail. But, uh, you know, those of us that know you find it completely believable that uh, you would have been able to, to navigate uh, through something uh, as challenging as that and then end up with uh, with the girl. So but let me um, just just to, just to pair, you, the one thing I will say, it was much bigger than I realized because being in L.A., they didn't cover it. 
it wasn't as big a deal. And now in New York, it was a it was a tabloid story. So it was running, you know, every day. Oh, nonstop. Yeah. Yeah. So when I got there, even over that weekend, there was over 400 media camped out outside of her house. And I said, oh, this shit, man, this shit is like, <laughs> this is major. This is much yeah. bigger than I thought, you know. Mm -hmm. And I was just happy as a black man. You know, you just want an opportunity to, to compete, you know. And mm -hmm. for my little boutique PR company, I just said, this is my chance just to show people that I felt, you know, I had the expertise to be competitive, you know, no matter how big the, you know, the task was that I could, I could work it out. But it was, it was much bigger than I thought. It was a more of a detriment to her than a lot of people thought it was, mm -hmm. who, who, who just thought, oh, well, any press is good press. Um, it took a long time for her to um, put that behind her. So it wasn't something like all of a sudden the press conference was over and everything was hunky dory and she got rejected for well, a long time. It was an early time. version of cancel culture, right? I mean, yeah. I was in New York at the time, so I remember how intense the press was about it. And look, you know, it may sound, you know, disingenuous to say it now, but, the, you know, I, there were a lot of us who never believed that it was that big a deal. We were more proud of Vanessa for what she had accomplished than embarrassed for her for what ultimately came of it. But to your point, man, it, it was it was a major story, and and it was an early version of, of cancel culture. Yeah, especially in New York, because she she was Miss New York, mm -hmm. and that was the one thing that I underestimated in trying to sense the magnitude of what this meant in terms of a bigger story. We're, we're winding towards a close. So you're you're in the process of writing a book, and you know I know you have you know unique insights, fascinating stories. You've been at the center of the entertainment industry. Um, and have seen some disruptions, streaming, Netflix, Spotify, uh, quite an evolution uh, during your time. And, you know, those of us that know you, man, know you as a very calm, cool, collected, perfect gentleman. Um, so we're, I'm, I'm very interested to hear what the story uh, is that you're working on from your perspective, Ramon, in your book. But in a broad sense, what stands out for you as a veteran of the industry about where we were when you started, where we are now, and what you see down the road? Uh, that's a huge question. I'll do my best <laughs> to try to answer it. Um, but the book is really, it's not a memoir, first of all. Mm -hmm. So I'm not, it's, it's not a personal account. I'm obviously throwing in personal anecdotes and stories, um, but it's really my perspective on fame. It's called the, the, the fame game. And you know, when I was trying to think, a lot of people say, oh, you have such great stories. And I've been encouraged to write a book for, for a long time. And, you know, I thought about it and I just kept thinking, you know, I'm not, I'm not really much, I've never been a person to blow my own horn. And I actually never desired to be famous. You know, I just wanted to, to be a winner at what I do, you know, and, and uh, represent. That, that was really my main goal. And just to get better, learn, always been open to knowledge and, you know, everything that I've tried to put my hands on I just wanted it to be successful um, and uh, but I didn't really think that I needed to be famous because I think fame can be a liability and particularly uh, for a publicist or a manager if you're more famous than your clients that's not necessarily a, a benefit <laughs> you know, so I, I was always very conscious of that, to be respectful of that and my place and just to let people know that, you know, I'm here to help you. I'm not trying to be you. Um, it's not our career. It's your career. You know, this is what I can do for you. 
uh, even with my even with Vanessa, I always stress that you know I'm here to help you. I'm not. This is you know this is not our career. This is your career. I have my own career. You know, but I think. You know, uh, fame as I first uh, started, and, and it kind of comes from, you know, just real simple. Andy Warhol once said, you know, everyone gets 15 minutes of fame. And so my book, The Philosophy, it's, it's a philosophical book uh, where I'm using case studies of my most cherished clients and the ones that I think I impacted the most, you know, like uh, a Bette Midler was someone that um, really was pivotal in my career because she was one, she was very talented, she was multifaceted, and she chose me over a lot of other people that she could have elected to to be with. I mean, she was a huge star and she, I had gotten a chance to work with her at Rogers and Cowan. And then when I went out on my own, she hired me and it was a huge endorsement of my talent, uh, my expertise. Uh, Richard Pryor was another one who supported me. Um, so I'm kind of using those things and, you know, giving people an opportunity to see what it's like to work with famous people from a professional side um, and what, what my mindset was. And as you said, I'm, I'm kind of a cerebral person, so um, I'm trying to uh, share my, my thoughts and how uh, I strategically tried to approach each client and every client was different. You know, uh, my mandate was always different. I, I never looked at any, what I did for one client could work on another client. Um, and any of the brands that I built, like R&B Live, that had its own, you know, problems. And, and you know, because I came to you, and I don't know if you remember this, but you were a person that I thought my bigger concept for R&B Live, for example, wasn't just to have a little club in L.A. I wanted to build a franchise because I was familiar with this. When I lived in London, England, there was a circuit of clubs called the Bailey Circuit, and they were supper clubs. And I wanted to combine what you were doing with um, George's with what we were doing with R&B Live. And I thought that we could do that in New York, L.A., London, Japan, and then route all the talent to tour the talent. That was a bigger picture. And at one time, you know, we tried to get you on board, but you were already part of the general management group for Roxbury and you weren't allowed to, to do something because we were considered a competitor. You guys had Tuesday night. We had Wednesday night. El Provado was Monday night, if you remember. Mm -hmm. So, but that was, you know, you were part of my thinking. And when I thought of how do we make this restaurant, this, this supper, you know, entertainment supper club with cutting edge contemporary music work it was a combination of the food and the cuisine with the music to support it and so that was the, really the bigger picture there but again everything that um, the fame that I thought we needed for R&B Live was to do that so to me fame is is not it's it's a reward and it's a tool and other than that it doesn't have as much value as people put on it you know it's it shouldn't just be it's not a destination and i think that's where in my book i i try to explain that that's my my take is if all you want is 15 minutes of fame you might end up with 2 or 3 minutes but if you don't have a goal associated with why you want to be famous and what are you going to do with that fame when you get it? It's a big leap to go from anonymity to fame. And if you don't know what you're going to do after you get it, then you wasted it because it could, it could dwindle and dissipate before you actually have a chance to figure out and it's gone. And a lot for a lot of people, you don't get it back. 
it doesn't, it's not like something you just go, oh, okay, I can just go back next week and become famous again. It don't happen like that. You, you lose it. A lot of times it never comes back. And so that's kind of what I'm trying to deal with in the book and to, you know, maybe impart some knowledge to some younger people out there who are using social media and believe that that fame is going to be lasting and it's going to change their lives. And even, you know, the, the fight, if you, if recently there was a fight between Mayweather and the, and the, and the white kid who's a social media star. If you look at all the media that covered that fight, you have uh, Mayweather who's famous on a level. He's one of the greatest athletes of all time. He's on upper tier level fame on the level of not so much for everything like a Muhammad Ali, but for his industry, he's one of the best to ever do it. And he's very famous. Then you have this other guy who's only been around for two or three years and the media calls him, he has social media fame. Mm -hmm. So that's already telling you, like, even the media doesn't look at social media, the fame you get from social media, the same way they look at The Rock or even someone like Kevin Hart or, you know, Meryl Streep. You know, these are, these are stars who are elevated even beyond what social media can accomplish for you. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a misnomer that a lot of the young talent that, that they feel like getting the foul, it's, it's frivolous fame that you may never be able to monetize. And it doesn't last. And I just think that it's we're in a state in where we are as a culture, because basically fame is available today to almost every culture. There are black famous people at some level or not. You can be uh, Indians. I mean, if you look, there's there's so many ways to create your own identity or have some margin of fame. It might only be a minute. And I, that's why I go, go back to, you know, if you only have two minutes, it doesn't really matter. It's No one's going to remember. You know, someone say, oh, yeah, yeah, he was uh, hot on. Yeah, I remember him. If you have seven minutes, maybe... You can work steady. You know, if you have seven minutes of fame as an actor, you can probably become, build a great character actor role, whatever. You can keep performing, whatever. If you have 15 minutes of fame or 10, you know, 10 to 15 minutes of fame, if you have a great strategy and a team behind you, then you can milk that and turn it into longevity, a long career. You know, but you, then you have to keep fueling it, reinventing yourself, making changes just to sustain a certain level of fame so that you're relevant. But again, it's it's a tool. It's not. And I think that that's what everybody has to decide if that's the lane that you want to get in. Like, how much fame do I need to be? Uh, do I need to achieve to be comfortable within myself? in terms of who I am, if my goal is to be a personality, and financially, you know, did, did the amount of fame, is the amount of fame that I have giving me job security? And that's where I think um, my book is gonna deal with those issues and then just show how these different people that I worked with, Quincy, Don, Richard, Bad baby face, Vanessa, how they all approach fame differently. Ramon Hervey the second. And uh, I'm gonna I'll, I'm gonna stop it right there. And I and I like the um, the idea that fame is not a destination. You know, it can be fuel, but it's not 
the uh, the end destination. Thank you so much, man, for for joining me here today on Corner Table Talk, and uh, gonna really look forward to uh, to your book when it comes out. But uh, in the meantime, man, it's it's just been a pleasure having you on the show, and uh, I appreciate the uh, the decades of uh, of friendship and uh, and guidance, man. Uh, you're one of the best. Thanks so much, man. Good talking to you. Good talk to you too. That was Ramon Hervé II, and uh, here we are now with Ambassador Shabazz and and How We Move. Ambassador, what's going on in your world? Well, you know, first of all, it was really wonderful to listen to Mr. Hervé II there, having heard from him in, I would say, a decade directly. And, you know, reflectively in the 80s, when we were all so explosively proud of the mother of his children, Vanessa Williams, And then the assault is the way we felt, you know, when she was being um, maligned by, you know, an an action that she took as a young person, you know, Mm -hmm. but there was no yielding regard for the impact. And then here comes Ramon Hervey on the scene. And when you saw him, there was a calm there was a trust, there was a certainty. And while we knew it, the crisis was big, I think many of us, certainly myself, felt the comfort in knowing that she was in good hands. And so while he was already a publicist for nearly a decade prior, his entree was quite defining in 1984 Mm -hmm. in how he represented people of color, how he represented black manhood, how he represented his professionalism on behalf of this person that we had already so claimed. And because, you know, I don't even know if I knew that publicity, a publicist was a thing before Ramon. No, and he was very defining. We, I mm-hmm. think he served many purposes at that time, and he was young, and in her needing him, we needed him. He was an advocate in a way that made no noise. He had a quiet presence. He was ever-present, and you knew that she was able to inhale and exhale in a very challenging time where um, a young person's explorations or poor choice now is being graded for other reasons, because we certainly know that she didn't do anything that should have had the same outcome. But what was really beautiful, and then I was in Los Angeles, so we're from Westchester County, the Williams and I, my mother was also an educator, so we knew knew the family. And then, but meeting them in Los Angeles and watching her in good hands and in the fold of the Hervey family was relieving for me as well, uh, you know. And so hats off to the kind of gentleman, both professionally and personally, humanly, that Ramon Hervey has been for the three plus decades we've known him at all. Still young, you know, he's a peer, and yeah. but he did it early on. There was no drum roll that preceded him, and he was eloquent, elegant, and representative. And so to see him now and to know that the children are grown and busy and everyone's living a life. And as you all recounted, all of the various industries and experiences in Los Angeles, which I also participated in, I just think we often do not get to credit our contributions and impact on culture. We need to do that more often. And I think we realize that when we hear Ramon talk about the um, lack of media coverage access, writers, editors, you know, from the time that he started uh, as a publicist who would, you know, need to reach out to those sources and and not have them there and just 
missing the narrative from those periods that uh, was not from uh, from our perspective about our own culture. No, but here we are now, you know, 30 plus years later with our own kind of seniority and the opportunity to even have corner table talk and, and our comrades to share, reflect and chronicle. This is really timely so that young people, I mean, with the new word influencers, I think we have to, they, <laughs> they haven't a clue. Right. You know, I mean, bless them. But you want to say you couldn't be the influencer you are now without that which preceded, you know, you. And I just loved his candor, his openness Mm -hmm. about the highs and lows of life and balancing them. And me knowing him on this side of it, he was always when he entered the room, you knew a gentleman was present. um, Yeah. No question. Yeah. No question. Yeah. So at, now, not to mention, I'm glad that he's in my uh, in our home state. I'm, I I mm-hmm. love the fact that he's experiencing Manhattan, even though he's a Californian by way of Chicago. And you're right. We're going to have to go have that cornbread. Yeah. So uh, tell me, what else? What else has your well, attention? Well, let me say this. Um, I am ecstatic about people who are daring to travel, who are people are emailing me and telling me that they've finally gotten their their passports. There are people who are asking me if I could help define life uh, winter abroad in a warm, mm-hmm. sunny place. Um, juxtapose, I think 2020 enable us to realize that there are a lot of ways you can live your life before retirement. And so there's the whole expat world, right? And expats mm-hmm. are not just people who are seniors getting away, but they're people who are making midlife career decisions to kind of downsize and make a life across the globe. And there's this sister, uh, Turner Francis. She's an Afro-Jamaican sister who she and her husband have lived across the world in a number of locations. Of course, her home country of Jamaica, but also London, uh, Hong Kong and Dubai, where they uh, created a vegan dessert company. And since then, they decided they were going to go to Belize. Now, you know, I know Belize very well. But Mm -hmm. because you have to go through the United States to get to Belize during COVID last year, they were waylaid and they were able to go direct to Mexico City. While there, they visited Tulum, where they are now. They never made it to Belize. So -hmm. they're in Tulum and they've created this entity in Tulum, Mexico called Boho Vegano. And it's a superb day experience, not a bed and breakfast, but it is a getaway for all vacationers to spend time at their location um, where they get to do various kinds of vegan uh, workshops and healing remedies through food and plant-based. And it's just really where you relax with the water and everything. So I'm on my way. Yeah, yeah, we are relaxing and re-energizing. In <laughs> have Tulum. you been to Tulum? I have. It's uh, it's really beautiful. It's a, just a stretch, you know, of, of beach and resort properties, but it's become, you know, a pretty a little bit chic in the last yeah. few years. I was there yeah. in the, in the early nineties mm-hmm. when it was less so, but uh, a lot of Birkin bags, but more more yogis and and you know yes. people seeking that. Uh, that kind of lifestyle. Uh, and not far away, obviously. I understand there are a lot of Airbnbs, a lot of small boutique resorts, and that's who they serve. They are not putting you to sleep, but they're engaging you by day with um, all kinds of workshops and daily experiences. And I would just say to people, tune in, go online to bohovegano.com mm-hmm. um, and let them know that you heard it on the Corner Table Talk. Bohovegano.com. 
Okay. Yes. You heard it here. Ambassador Shabazz telling Indeed. us how we should move. Thank you. Indeed. Good to see you. You too, my dear. Corner Table Talk is hosted by Brad Johnson, produced by Brad and Linda Ailes Johnson. Theme music, Life Goes On by Bryce Vine. Executive producer, Ken Johnson. Find the Corner Table Talk podcast wherever you get your podcast. Follow, subscribe, rate, and leave a comment. Corner Table Talk is a mean old lion media production.